Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. What would it be like if Jesus walked among us today? What would he look like? Would you be able to tell he was Jewish just by looking at him? What would it feel like to make eye contact? Would you be drawn to him, his charisma? Would he wear his hair long or short? Or perhaps he would be going bald. Would he wear a heavy beard or be cleaner cut? Would he wear corrective ones? Would he be a little on the husky side or a little bit thin, maybe? Would he be in good shape? Would, you meet, would he meet you for a workout at 24-hour fitness? How would he dress? What would his taste be? Brook Brothers, Gap, Earth Tones, Goodwill. Would Jesus wear a tie to church or jeans and a t-shirt? And just where would he go to church? Assuming he'd go to church, certainly. Maybe a small fellowship or a mega church? Or would he visit all around? Would he go on Saturday sundown, Sunday morning, or both? Would he value prayer meetings? Well, at least as much as we do. Where would Jesus grow up? Apartment, housing project, suburbs? Where would he live as a man? Maybe in a commune with 12 other men? Or would he choose to be homeless again on a planet he claimed to create? Where would he go for R&R? By the water or a mountain condo? Can you picture Jesus going on a cruise? How long would he stay on the boat? What kind of car would he drive? BMW, SUV, Kia, one of those go green hybrids, 
Maybe he just walk or bike or use public transportation. Would he ever ride a Harley? What would Jesus be like if he locked his keys in his car? Would he fly in a plane? Economy or first class? How would he treat the flight attendant? Would they keep him an eye on him, being from the Middle East and all? Would Jesus support the war in Afghanistan? What would he have to say to the leader of North Korea? Or to the leader of America? Where would Jesus get the news? Fair and balanced? Would Jesus be a Democrat or a Republican? Or would it depend? Would he have voted for Trump or Clinton or Sanders? Or would he vote at all? What would Jesus think of American capitalism? What would Jesus say about gay marriage and to whom? What does Jesus think of Israel, the Palestinians? Would he be a hawk or a dove? Would Jesus have a dog? Would Jesus take aspirin when he gets a headache? Or just pray for healing? Or both at the same time? Would Jesus go to a doctor? Would he have health insurance or life insurance? How close would Jesus be with a woman? Him being single and all. What would Jesus be like at a funeral? Do you think he would sit through it silently? Would he work as a builder and wander the aisles of Home Depot for therapy? Or would he get into the business side of things? Would he have many bills to pay? Would he use a checking account or a credit card? Would he frequent Starbucks or Fairtrade Coffee? Would Jesus ever be in the middle of family disagreements? Would he catch some reality TV just for conversation starters? Would Jesus eat fast food? Chick-fil-A maybe? Would we like Jesus? Or would he have been a little too radical for our sensibilities? Would we listen to him, all this stuff about being the son of God and the savior of the world? Maybe we would determine him a bit off, especially after all those crazy stories. Would we conclude he's definitely full of himself and diagnose him delusional and in need of counseling? Someone who needed more discipline as a child? Would we end up killing him again? I mean, if he lived with us today. Or would we put him under church discipline like his pastors did? What would Jesus be like if he lived with us now? Would we get him? Why don't we just take the next 30 minutes and think about that? (laughs) Wow. In the late 16, early 1700s, there was an obscure Italian craftsman named Antonio Stradivari. He began to fiddle around with some wood in his workshop. In 2010, one of his fiddles sold for $3.6 million. It's estimated that there are only about 500 of his violins left, the Stradivarius. They've done extensive scientific research on a couple of them, trying to understand 
how this instrument that he made makes such a beautiful sound. And there's theories abounding. Some think it's in the combination of wood, the maple, the spruce, the willow that he used. Others think it's in the way he treated the wood before he put it all together with a unique mineral compound. Some think it's in the varnish that he would put on the outside of uh, the entire instrument that had uh, gum Arabic, uh, egg whites, and honey in it. The problem is no one will ever know because he never wrote it down. He believed that you learn to work with the wood and make beautiful sound by apprenticeship. What one biographer called elbow learning. The Gospel of Mark is elbow learning. Where we get to stand and walk and sit next to Jesus. Hear him engage his world. Hear him speak of the kingdom and demonstrate it. And we at his elbow become apprentices of the master. In the Gospel of Mark, the main theory is that Jesus, the main theme, excuse me, is that Jesus is the Son of God. And all the attending authority that comes with that claim. That's what Mark is designed to show us. And we have to make that decision of whether we believe he is the Son of God. But the second most common theme in the Gospel of Mark is this idea of discipleship. Following Jesus, being at his elbow, and learning the kingdom. Today we enter our first text of discipleship, and we're going to learn two uh, of the most important ingredients in the recipe of discipleship. The first is that we need to know our identity as a follower of Jesus, who we are. And second, we need to know his identity as the Son of God. As we'll see, the one who binds the strong man. Let's talk about our identity. It's in that first story. But first, we really need to understand the setting before we launch into Jesus naming the disciples. As you heard, um, the crowds are, are crazy. And, and what's interesting is that Jesus has really alienated the ruling class. You know, his religious leaders, uh, the people of power, he has really stepped on their toes, let's say. But the crowds continue to grow and grow and probably, in chapter 3, reach their zenith. Just to give you a sense of them, though, let me point out a couple of things. First, you may have noticed the names that Jenna read, Judah and Jerusalem. That was 100 miles away. Jesus is up in Capernaum in the north part of Israel by the Sea of Galilee. Judea and Israel, 100 miles to the south. Edomia, 120 miles to the west. Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles to the north. Now, we might be able to imagine a speaker being that good that we'd hop in our car and drive 100 miles to hear him. But what if you had to walk or ride a beast of burden? Can you get just a glimpse of how stunning Jesus was to attract crowds from that distance? And secondly, you may have noticed as well with those names that he's cutting across ethnic diversity. I mean, Jews, obviously, but there's Idumea and Tyre and Sidon. These are very different nationalities. Jesus' popularity cuts across all ethnic divisions. And this was a time in Jesus' day of ethnic isolation and tension. And Jesus is attracting them all. Thirdly, you probably noticed how dangerous the crowds were. So dangerous. P 
people, especially wanting to be healed, were pressing on him that they got a boat and had him stand out in the sea to speak so that he wouldn't be crushed by the press of the crowd. I'm guessing, too, there was a certain element of amplification of his voice coming off the water that could reach thousands of people. I've always imagined Jesus having a strong voice. Lastly, in the setting and the environment and putting yourselves there, wouldn't you be really amazed by the people who keep talking about Jesus? Well, not really people. Did you notice who's really talking the most about Jesus? The demons. Jesus walks into a crowd and anyone who, you know, is carrying a demon or, or has been influenced by demons, those demons start to talk. We know who you are. You are the Son of God. Can you imagine? Jesus shuts him up. Shut up! Jesus wanted to control the release of his identity and his ministry, not the demons. But is it not interesting that the demons can't help themselves? And they are the evangelists. Here's the thing, though. With Jesus and his ministry, it was never about crowds. Never. We mentioned last week in the Gospel of Mark, crowds, the word actually has mostly a negative connotation in the book, as it's, it's always crowds that are getting in people's way of getting to Jesus. Jesus' goal was never crowds. And so what we see him doing is from the midst of this crowds, from the teaching, from the miracles, he steps away. He goes up onto a mountainside. Now in the, in the sentence, in, in that particular part of the text, the language gets interesting. The first thing that it says when he's on the mountain, it says that he makes 12. I think the text in the NIV said he appointed 12. It's actually the word made. It's a creative word. And 12 is not 8, it's not 10, it's not 15, it's 12. Why? Well, because in the Old Testament, Moses went up on the mountain, God gave him revelation for the people, and he organized the 12 tribes of Israel. Now Jesus goes up on the mountain to be with his father, there's revelation, and now he calls to himself 12 apostles. Just a quick reminder that the Bible is one book, with one story about one per person, Jesus, calling one people. In the First Testament, it's the people of Israel who were called out to be witnesses to invite all the nations to know the true God. And in our age, this era, it's the church formed by the 12 apostles. But we exist to invite all nations to know the true and living God and to proclaim the resurrected Jesus. It's one story. He made 12. And isn't it interesting? Remember when we were in Revelation? When we get to the New Jerusalem, there's a wall around the city with open gates. The wall sections are named after the apostles. The gates are named after the tribes of Israel. We're one people with one purpose. So he makes 12. And then the second thing that's interesting about the language of the text is that it says he names them apostles. Again, I think the NIV is rather unfortunate, uses the word again, appointed, but it's really the word named. Anamas. You may hear our word nomenclature or nomenclature, which means name. He's naming the apostles. And there's two senses in which he's naming them. He's speaking their names. These apostles have their names on the lips of the Lord God. And then some of their names, you may have noticed, he's changing. 
He changes Simon's name to Peter, the rock. He changes James and John's names to, the, to Boanerges, which we're not really sure what it means. It literally means sons of thunder, but some scholars think it's because they were loudmouths. Other scholars think it was because of their influence that they would have on the entire world. Who knows? Jesus is nicknaming them. He's renaming them. Names were important, especially in the ancient world. Parents, and especially in Israel, believed that you would choose a name for your child, and then every time you spoke that name, it was a prayer that your child would become that name. Now, I'm not sure we put that emphasis on our names today, but I would argue that even in our culture, naming is important. I mean, think of the billions of dollars that are spent on branding, products, companies, and people. Came across a list of uh, celebrities a while back. Do you know who this is? Demetria Jean Gaines. Any guesses? Shout it out. Demi Moore. Who's this? This next one. Joaquin Raphael Bottom. Well, of course, it's Joaquin Phoenix. How about this? Gordon Matthew Sumner. Somebody knows this. Sting. Karen Elaine Johnson. Whoopee! Goldberg. Oh, some of you know this. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys named Marion. Names matter. Having our names on people's lips and those perceptions that are created by our names are really important. Names are power. Names form perception. If you call something a name, it becomes that. I was, uh, forgive, forgive this crass kind of thing, but I was on a, in a bathroom in a Silverthorne on Thursday. And this was on the toilet paper dispenser. I had to snap it. I used to be a tree. Please use only what you need. Now, is that true? If you perceive your toilet paper to be a tree, will you use less? It's a theory, okay? It's a theory. Names hold power, the power of perception. You know what else names hold? They hold bonding. We discovered when we had our boys and they were little, they loved pets. If they named that pet, they became really attached to that pet. And we put tombstones all the way from Arizona to New Hampshire in our travels. When a mouse or a lizard or a turtle or whatever it was would die, we'd have to have a tombstone. And I remember one mouse in New Hampshire had 26 names on the tombstone. And we always had to have funerals for our dead animals because they named them. There was a, a bond in, in that. Jesus names us. He... he, he he names us. He, he has our name on his lips, and he, he renames us. He, he speaks our name. He holds that power over us. To be a follower of Jesus is to have your name on his lips. So if we think we're weak, but he says you're strong, he cannot be wrong. If we think we're poor and he says we're rich, then we have more than we could ever count. Whoever names you owns you.
There's a story in Luke 16, one of Jesus' more famous stories. You may have heard of it. It's called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Have you ever wondered why the rich man was never named? Here's my theory. He's never named because he found his identity in his wealth. Whatever names you, owns you. And when he no longer had his wealth, who is he? Whatever names you, owns you. If you are a professional athlete and that is your identity, what happens when you hit 40? Unless you're Tom Brady. What happens if your identity is wrapped up in even good things, even things they should be wrapped up? What if your identity is a mom or a dad or an employee for a certain company? Those are good things, but if they are your only identity, I, I have to tell you that you're losing it already. What if Jesus names you? Do you remember when we were in Revelation? There was this crazy verse it's still haunting us. 2.17, well, the whole book of Revelation is still haunting us. I still twitch. But um, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What does that mean? I have no idea, but it's good. It's good. Jesus has your name in his mind and on his lips. In John chapter 10, it says Jesus is the good shepherd and he knows his sheep and his sheep know him. I was thinking about a book that I'd read several years ago by Tim Laniak, who teaches Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell, and it was on shepherding, and it was pastoring and shepherding. And he, to write the book, actually went in and embedded himself with shepherds in the Middle East. And I'll never forget, he interviewed a Jordan, Jordanian shepherd, and he asked him some series of questions. How many sheep do you have? And the Jordanian shepherd said, 2,000. And he, he said, well, how do you keep track of all them? And the shepherd said, I know each one by name. How is that possible? I live with them. And then there was this line the shepherd gave that has stayed with me, with you, since I read the book. He said, shepherding is not a business. It's the work of the soul. You are Jesus' soul. He knows your name. He's given us new names. He speaks our name. And so part of being the, in the identity of a follower of Jesus is to know Jesus knows your name and speaks a name over you. And then we spend the rest of our lives living in that name, living into it. Like Peter, right? He changed from Simon to Peter. Peter means rock, but at that point in time when Jesus names him, he's the least rock of all the disciples. The man is a flake. 
not dependable. Whatever you think a rock is, it's not Peter. But the rest of his life, he fills that name, grows into that name, begins to understand who he is, who Jesus is, and he becomes Peter. And Jesus builds his church on a man like Peter. We're all living in to that name that Jesus speaks over us. How, how though, do we live into it? Practical. Let's get practical for a moment. How do we understand who we are, our identity with Jesus and in his kingdom? There's two clues in the text. The first clue is that he sends you. What he's doing with these uh, names, these men, is he's going to send them out as apostles, and they will preach, speak Jesus' name and truth, and they will demonstrate with exorcisms and miracles. They will demonstrate um, the works of the kingdom. And by the way, we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, let me just tease you a little bit and say we are far, far too timid with how we use Jesus' name. More to come. My point when Jesus wants us to know who we are, he sends us out. That is, he wants us to serve. Jesus once said it this way, you will find out who you are when you lose yourself. Now, there's a place for personality tests. There's a place for sitting around and, you know, reflecting, journaling, or who am I? What are my strengths? What are my gifts? There's a place for all that. But the primary way you will find out who you are in the kingdom of God, what your identity is as a follower of Jesus at his elbow, is by serving. Where, Larry? Anywhere. Anywhere. Serve. Get involved in other people's lives. You will find out what you're good at. People will tell you what you're good at and if they have the guts, what you're not so good at, which is just as helpful, it hurts, but you will find out your identity in the kingdom of God through serving. And real quickly, where, Larry? Where? I, I, I'm just new to water. Where? I always tell people, if you're not sure, start in the nursery. Amen. Start with kids. Why? Because the kingdom of God is kids. Jesus would put a kid on his lap and say, look, kingdom. I get flabbergasted at <clears throat> older adults who say, well, you know, I've done my time. Really? You're done with the kingdom of God? You're never done with kids. Never. You might need a break. You're never done with kids. If you don't know where to jump in and serve and find out who you are, jump in with our kids' ministry, with our Awana ministry on Sunday nights. Get involved. You know the other way you find out who you are, your identity, as you stand at the elbow of Jesus? He says it this way. He sends you, and then he twelves you. The closest thing Jesus did to a program was choose 12 guys and go camping for three years. He lived in a small group. If you want to discover who you are in Jesus, join a small group. It's not too late. You can still get in one of our Markwins. Stop at the info desk. Jesse will get you in. You should be in a small group. Not only to learn Mark, but to find out who you are. Because in a small group, what you're really doing is giving 12, whatever number of people, 12 people hunting licenses to look into your heart 
and reflect it back to you. That's how you'll grow. That's how you find out who you are in God's kingdom, by being part of a 12. So, the first part of the identity of knowing who we are in Jesus is having a name. Jesus names us, our name on his lips, and thus he's empowering us to go out and serve and to be part of a community, and we will find out who we are. The second part of being a follower of Jesus is to know his identity. And we go to the next story. Let me again set the, set the context here a little bit. They're in a house. Many think, again, it's Peter's house, which is Jesus' home base in Capernaum. We don't know. I will call it a house of theory, though, right? It's a theory. There are those, his family, who think he's out of his mind. Can you imagine? Jesus had at least four brothers, at least two sisters, and a mom. Not sure where dad is. They come, and the text says they're going to seize him. They are going to carry him out of the house. They're going to restrain him because he is out of his mind. Their older brother has lost it. 30 years old, and we're carrying him out. There's the other theory from Jesus' religious leaders down in Jerusalem. He is possessed by Beelzebul. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But they are slandering him. His family wants to seize him. His pastors want to slander him. Why? Well, a theory is always based on working data. And here's the data that we have so far in the first three chapters of Mark. First of all, Jesus claims to be the one who forgives all sin, that every sin is against us, uh, against him. Second, he claims to be the son of man. Every time Jesus refers to himself, he pulls this title out of Daniel 7 and 9, where the son of man is sitting at the right hand of the ancient of days. It's the highest claim to deity known to Jews he calls himself the son of man, not to say and speak of his humanity, but to speak of his deity. He is referencing deity in Daniel. That's two. He's the one that forgives sins. He's the son of man. And three, as we heard at the end of chapter three, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he existed before all things. And when the Sabbath commandment was given, guess what? It was me. I gave you that command. So imagine you had a brother and sister, or a brother. Imagine you have a brother who started saying, I've lived forever. I made all things in you. And by the way, I'm going to come back again someday, and your destiny and your eternal future is going to be decided on what you do with me. What would you think? Uh huh. So to respond to his family and to his pastors, Jesus tells a story, a parable. It's an interesting story. Jesus called them over to him and began to speak in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. So it's a logical argument Jesus is making, merely in terms of military strategy, 
a, a general to win the war would never attack his own army and flank his own self. Never. Jesus says, you're saying I have a demon and I, and I am a demon and I'm doing this with Satan's power. It makes no sense because why would Satan oppose Satan? But then he makes this staggering claim. No one can enter a strong man's house. That's Satan, the devil. No one can enter the devil's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus here is telling the entire story of reality. Here it is. God created everything and you and it was good. But then the strong man came. He invaded the, the house. He took over the house, this kingdom, the serpent, the strong man. And he tempted our parents and we and them, Adam and Eve. And he said, are you sure? Are you sure all that God's saying is true? And they said, no, we're, we're really not sure. And they, they took the tempter's uh, opinion and decided would go our own way, live our own uh, existence. And they separated from God. As God was escorting them out of the garden, Adam and Eve and we and them, he makes a prophecy. He says that from the seed of a woman will come one whom the serpent will strike in the heel a short time of pain, but then the seed of the woman will crush the head of the Satan, of Satan the strong, bind the strong man and plunder, steal you and I out from the strong man's influence. There's the story of reality. And Jesus has come to take back what is rightfully his and to plunder the strong man's house. Now here's where it gets interesting though. The question is how? I mean in Jesus' day they were expecting someone to come with a big sword and a big throne and take the world over with power and maybe save a tribe or two, Israel, whoever. Jesus comes and he does it in a way that no one expects. Instead of going to a throne, he goes to a cross. Instead of wielding a sword, he wears a crown of thorns. And he, he the God of all, the strong, the man who can bind the strong man becomes weak. And he lays down his life. He becomes one of us to live the life we should have lived. He becomes one of us so that he could be killed, seized, controlled, and put down in our place for our sins. Jesus binds the strong man and takes back what's rightfully his through divine weakness. Now this has immense implications as we understand God's identity for how we live. Let me just say one briefly. In this world we will be mistreated. There will be a moment when someone injures us, hurts us, persecutes us. Intentionally, unintentionally, we will be roughed up in this world. And the way of the world, the way of the strong man, is to strike back, to return in kind. You hurt me, I hurt you. Jesus, when we know his identity, comes into this equation and says, Romans 12, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You see, when we understand that Jesus binded the strong man by becoming weak, seeing his weakness for us melts our hearts so that we can become mighty in forgiveness. 
and when others hurt us, we want to have a process to get to forgiveness because of the way that Jesus loved us and because we know his identity. Jesus now demonstrates that even in how he responds to his pastors in verses 28 through 30 in a passage that has been controversial known as the unpardonable sin. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Real, real quick, you know, people ask me, what is the unpardonable sin? Is it suicide? Is it homicide? Is it child abuse? The answer, no, it's, it's none of those. Mark gives us the answer in his editorial comment, one of the few in the entire book. Mark weighs in and says, Jesus said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. The unpardonable sin is to say Jesus has a demon. The unpardonable sin is to equate the work of Jesus and his Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. To call Jesus the prince of Beelzebub. Beelzebul means, in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, it means lord of the house. It was changed over the years to Beelzebub to, to taunt Satan and say he's lord of the flies. And some uh, manuscripts would even say that uh, where do flies live? Well, they live in crap. And what they're really saying is Jesus is full of crap. That's the unpardonable sin. Jesus is warning the pastors that they are on dangerous ground to equate what Jesus is doing as a load of crap means that they are cutting themselves off from the work of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is the floodlight that points to Jesus that said, if you want to be saved, it has to be through him. And if you say, not him, he's full of crap, you are cutting yourself off from the only source of salvation. And that will be unpardonable. God can forgive any sin, every sin. He can forgive every sin, but he cannot forgive any sin that does not acknowledge Jesus as the source of forgiveness. So, two things to take out with us as we talk about our, knowing our identity and knowing Jesus' identity. The first is, if you believe Jesus' identity, his claims to be the forgiver, the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, all those claims, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, there will be times in your life when your family thinks you're crazy and your leaders think you're evil. And Jesus wants you to know when that happens, you're my family. You are my family. Psalm 27, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Secondly, your identity will cost you in this life if you want above all other identities to, to be known as a follower of Jesus. It will cost you. It will cost you money. You will give money away. It will cost you fame. You will be humble and let others, you know, it's not really important to you to have your name on other people's lips. There will be cost in that. But here's what I want you to know. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. When Jesus speaks your name, amazing things happen in your life. 
These 12 men, they were fishermen, tax collectors. They were nobodies, family men. They, they were fragile. They were fickle. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. And yet, who of us does not know their names today? When Jesus puts your name on his lips, you receive a name. Do you know what it is? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have the applause of heaven. And that is the door you've been knocking on your entire life. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want that in your life? Right now, we're going to give you just a moment of silence. Do any business you need to do with Jesus, but really tell him you're committed to his identity and you are committed to your identity as a follower of Jesus. Anything you need to, to say or do with Jesus, just take a moment to do that right now. stand together at Jesus elbow let's pray as he taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.